You're listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message at 11 a.m. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. To learn more, visit mtcarmeldemarest.com or facebook.com forward slash mtcarmeldemarest. Thanks for listening. You're watching uh, Find John chapter 19 uh, in the Word of God. It's in the New Testament. It's in the last quarter of the Bible. Please uh, use your index. Uh, Also in the comment section you will find a link to an insert uh, that you can download and fill in the blank uh, to help you better retain the sermon. Also if you have a smartphone and you've downloaded the uh, Version Bible app, Y-O-U, you can go to the More tab, tap events by Mount Carmel Baptist Church. Click on today's sermon title. And there the scriptures, the references, the notes, and the quotes and pictures uh, will be made available to you there. If you're outside of the Habersham area, uh, you're going to probably need to search for Demarest, Georgia. That's D-E-M-O-R-E-S-T. And then you should be able to pull up Mount Carmel Baptist Church. I want to continue our series entitled Our Lord's Triumph. This is part five, and I've entitled it Exaltation. Now, we don't use the word exaltation a lot in everyday usage. Um, When we think about exalted or uh, to exalt someone, the closest thing in our culture would be probably uh, heroes, somebody who does a heroic act, Celebrities, they're exalted. Um, Sports champions, those who are amazing athletically, uh, we exalt them. Uh, And then, of course, presidents and those who uh, have high-profile positions. The word exalt essentially means to uh, lift up or bring to a high level of influence or um, you can say it this way, to elevate uh, to a, a higher rank or place of authority. And that's what we do with these individuals. A lot of times uh, they're magnificently you know, adorned. Uh, they look great. Uh, also, you'll see them uh, decorated with honors or presented with Trophies, Oscars, you know, championship titles, belts, maybe, of some sort. And then, of course, the media and paparazzi, they overrun them uh, just to get a word or even a picture. Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. Now, his religious enemies consider that to be blasphemy. Jesus also claimed to be the king of kings, uh, over a kingdom whose origin is not of this world. And his political enemies, the Roman Empire, of course considered that treasonous. So Jesus' religious and political enemies, they come together to get rid of him, to make him suffer and die. The governor of the... Israeli nation at that time uh, was a man named Pontius Pilate. He was a governor from the Roman Empire. And in order to appease the mob that were calling for Jesus' crucifixion um, and execution, 
G, uh, Pilate had Jesus whipped, flogged, uh, to show some kind of blood. And the soldiers even put a crown of thorns on Jesus' head that was set with the rubies of Jesus' own blood. And then they throw a purple rug uh, to mock like a uh, royal robe over Jesus. And again, it's crimsoned with the blood of Jesus. And they walk Jesus out in front of the crowd. He was a pathetic sight to look at this creature. And Pilate surely thought the crowds will sympathize in some way. They'll show compassion and just let him go. There's no way this man who claims to be the Son of God and the King of Kings is a threat to them either religiously or politically for the Roman Empire. But the blood was not enough for the crowd and they begin to cry, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate capitulates, he complies. And the irony of it is that what's about to take place is Jesus' exaltation. Jesus' exaltation. Now how is Jesus exalted in all of this? Look at John chapter 19, verses 16 through 18. It says, Then he handed him over to be crucified. Pilate hands Jesus over to the soldiers to be crucified. And then they, the soldiers, took Jesus away. Carrying the cross by himself, he went out to what is uh, called place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and two others with him one on either side with Jesus in the middle. How was Jesus exalted? The first thing that I want you to see is that Jesus was exalted by death. Jesus was exalted by death. Condemned criminals under the Roman Empire carried their own cross. Now this would have been the horizontal beam, the horizontal beam. Several stakes or the vertical beams were already erected on Golgotha, the hill, and they probably stood some as high as 10 foot. And they were there ready for executions. The hill that's named Golgotha, and as you see it here, the place of the skull, probably got its name because of its barren top that may have looked like a skull, or from some angles uh, and pictures of of the place, the hillside had caves in it and almost had the resemblance, like the face of a skull. The reason I want to point it out is, you may not hear the word Golgotha every day, but one term that Christians like to speak about is the term Calvary. And we get that term from the Latin Calvaria, which means skull. So Christians celebrate and sing about this skull hill. Again, what's happening at this place that's worthy of worship and praise among Christians? Here's what this is important. Calvary, Golgotha, skull hill is outside the city of Jerusalem. Now, why does that matter? It matters biblically and theologically. Listen to Hebrews chapter 13, verses 11 
and 12. It says this, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the most holy place by the high priest as a sin offering are burned outside the camp. Now let me just give you a little bit of context. What the author of Hebrews is referring to is in order for the Old Testament Israelites to make atonement for sin. Sin defiled them and separated them from the God of Israel. So in, so in God's grace, he provided a means by which their sins could be covered and they can enjoy relationship with one another, worship. So once a year, the high priest, this official representative of the people of Israel, would take an animal and it would be slaughtered and they would take the blood of that animal and go into the most inner sanctuary of the tabernacle or temple that would eventually be established in Jerusalem and they would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat of the altar of the ark of the covenant where God's presence uh, dwelled and that would appease the wrath of God it would cover their sin for the next year in which this whole ritual had to be done over again. Now, what happened to the carcasses of the bodies, uh, or the the carcasses of the animals whose blood was used to cover the people's sins? They were taken outside the camp, all right, or outside the city, and they were discarded and burned there. And I want you to catch this. Anything that bears sin must die and be burned up. And so something interesting here, something interesting here. Jesus is going to march out of the city of Jerusalem to go hang on a cross at Calvary. Now, why is that important? Listen to the rest of Hebrews 13, verse 12. Therefore, Jesus also suffered outside the gate so that he might sanctify the people by his own blood. Jesus began to sweat drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was taken uh, from Pilate by the soldiers to be whipped. Of course, the blood began to stream there. It streamed all the way through the streets of Jerusalem, all the way to Calvary where he hung on the cross and bled and died for our sins. He is the atoning sacrifice. Jesus' death on the cross and then placed outside of the city proves that he is covered and cleansed all of humanity's sin. And then think about how this was accomplished. Jesus laid down on the cross when he got to the top of Calvary. He stretched out his hands and Roman soldiers, probably a squad of four, pierced through his hands or his forearm, his hands and feet, and then his, through his feet, probably his heels, to a wooden cross And then they hoisted Jesus and that horizontal beam up on the vertical beam. And there he bled and died. To his left and right, there were two thieves and they were crucified with him. This, his crucifixion, taking in the place in between two thieves is of theological and biblical importance. There was a prophecy by the prophet Isaiah, and he prophesied it over 700 years before the birth of Christ. It's found in Isaiah 53, 12. And it is a suffering servant prophecy. And we believe this to be the Messiah. 
Listen to what it says. It says, therefore, God, ah, God, will give him, this suffering servant, the Messiah, the many as a portion. So he will receive many people as a reward. And he will receive the mighty as spoil, as a treasure. Because, listen to this, he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels, the trespassers, the criminals. And yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels, the criminals, the trespassers. A part of becoming the Messiah to to fit the profile, the prophetic profile of who it meant to be the suffering servant, the Messiah, the Christ. You had to be numbered and counted among rebels, trespassers, and criminals. And here as Jesus, as John notes, he is hung between, in the middle of two thieves, robbers. Jesus, think about this, the perfect, spotless, holy Son of God dies a sinner's death. He is hung upon criminals' gallows, in the place of horrid crimes that we have committed against God, Jesus received our just reward for them. And in all of this, this is what I want you to think about. As Jesus is exalted by His death, here's what the exaltation is. He is taking our sins. And just like those animals of the Old Testament were covering the people's sins so that they can enjoy and worship God, That's what Jesus was doing on Skull Hill, Golgotha, Calvary. He was drawing us near to Him and bringing us close so that we can have a relationship with God that begins now and lasts through eternity. How was Jesus exalted? Jesus was first exalted by His death. Then let's look in verses 19 through 22. It says this, Pilate also had a sign made and put on the cross. It said, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign because the people where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. This was a public proclamation. This sign was published in the major languages and near a major city People were going to and from Jerusalem. Everybody could see this site on Golgotha and read the sign. And notice what it goes on to say. So the chief priest, this is Jesus' religious enemies of the Jews, said to Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate replied, what I have written, I have written. Here's the second thing. Not only was Jesus exalted by His death, number two, he was exalted by the description. He was exalted by the description. It was customary for them to place a title on the cross of the crucified to indicate the crime. Pilate ordered that the title, which would therefore be the charge or the crime, is that this criminal is Jesus of Nazareth and his crime is... He is the king of the Jews, which would have been considered treason to to the Roman emperor. Essentially, the high charge of treason was made against Jesus, who was against, so to speak, uh, the majestic emperor Tiberius. Now, several things that really are interesting. That's how they perceive this politically. And Jesus has told them his kingdom is not of this world. 
The chief priests did not like the wording of this title or sign. The sight of Jesus with king of the Jews above him fastened to a Roman cross out in public for everyone to see and read in and out of the city of Jerusalem, the capital of the Israeli nation, was something that they considered to be of complete humiliation to the people. And so they did not want to associate with the fact that according to the Roman Empire, if you go look at the charge against Jesus, they say he is the king of the Jews and he is treasonous and a threat to the empire. We must execute him. But Jesus' religious enemies said, no, no, say that he claimed that, not that he is that. And Pilate was not going to concede to them. He, he had had enough. Now why does that matter? Why does the title matter? Why is it included in Scripture? What's its function for today? I think it matters. Because I want you to think about what Pilate could have said. Pilate could have said, This is Jesus of Nazareth, a teacher of the Jews. And there would have been no offense. People love the teachings of Jesus. They're good and moral. And make a better society. Nobody would have had any problem with that. Pilate could have said, this is Jesus of Nazareth, a miracle worker of the Jews. Again, he did many signs and wonders among the crowd. People would not have found offense with that. But it's what? His, his in fact, being the king of the Jews that created an uproar. And I would say it's the same exact issue today. The resolve of human nature and our nature is always we will not let Jesus rule over us. We must be willing for Christ to save us. We'll say, Christ, yes, please save me from my sin. Forgive me of my sin. I want to spend eternity in heaven with you. But here's where we are offended when Jesus says, I am also your God, your Lord, and your King. I must rule over you. When Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, He's not just being a teacher. He is being a commander-in-chief. He is giving you the rules of His kingdom and His government. He actually expects you to go and love your neighbor as you love yourself. Jesus says, Uh, Forgive 70 times 7. So basically, have inexhaustible forgiveness for anyone. And that's such a quaint teaching. It's so tweetable, all those type kind of things. And here's where we find out whether we really have Jesus as our Lord and not just merely some ticket to heaven. It's this, as Jesus actually expects us under His rule and reign to forgive. To forgive those that's unforgivable because he has forgiven the unforgivable in us the proof of Jesus's lordship or his kingship over your life and my life if we're going to stick that title that Jesus is my king I follow Jesus the proof is when you do what he says when you listen and obey when Jesus is king Jesus controls and dictates our desires and dreams. 
When Jesus is king, he cramps and mortifies and kills greed, jealousy, envy, lust. When Jesus is king, he will condemn and convict us of self-righteousness and self-confidence. Jesus must reign and He will reign. He must reign over you despite all of your hostility and opposition. You must be brought to the feet of Jesus. Willingly surrender your entire life, not just your words, not just your thoughts or your good vibes. We're saying everything about you needs to be ruled over and overruled by King Jesus. Submit to His government. So Jesus is exalted by his death, and then he's also exalted by the description. And then we see a third thing. Look at verses 23 and 24 of chapter 19. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes and divided them into four parts, a part for each soldier. They also took the tunic, which was seamless, woven in one piece from the top. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see who gets it. This happened that the scriptures might be fulfilled that says, they divided my clothes among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. This is what the soldiers did. The third thing, Jesus was exalted by his death. He was exalted by the description. But the third thing, he was exalted by design. He was exalted by design. Contrary to the pictures that we have of the crucifixion, Jesus died naked. It's another horrible part of his humiliation. The soldiers, according to the custom at that time, stripped and divided the clothes, and it was considered not only cruelty, but their form of pay. It was their prerequisite. They had the first rights to those who were executed uh, possessions and property. And it's also customary, and I want to point this out just to show you how far Jesus was willing to go. They generally stripped the victim of the execution uh, after the flogging. He, he, he made the procession to Golgotha, Skull Hill, Calvary, naked all the way. Now, we'll talk about the significance of that in a moment. His clothes were probably handmade, so they were not cheap, just not a common commodity. And so what they decided to do was to take four parts of it and just divide it among the four soldiers, and there was a valuable tunic. The tunic was the inside garment. It laid against the skin. It wasn't underwear. This was just their basic garment that they had. And Jesus's in particular was woven in one exact piece. And so they knew if they divided it up, cut it up, it would be essentially worthless, useless. So they cast lots for it. This is important. These are Roman soldiers. They don't know Jewish uh, theology or the Bible. And yet they are fulfilling a prophecy a messianic psalm that was wrote 1,000 years 
before Jesus was born. It's Psalm 22, verse 18. Listen to this. They divided my garments among themselves, and they cast lots for my clothing. Now, what does this mean? What does this have to do with you and I? Here's what I need you to see. A thousand years before Jesus was born, this was predicted, and the Roman soldiers accomplished it. Why does John put it in here? Because what he wants you to see, this is not by accident. Jesus is in control. In fact, when you begin to take the Bible as a whole and look at the gospel, what I need you to understand, this is not plan B. Jesus, according to the Bible, is the lamb who takes away the sin of the world and he was slain from the foundation of the world. What does that mean? That means God had already set things into motion to, die, to have his son die for our sins before he even spoke the world into existence. You say, how, how can he do that? First of all, he knows everything. He knows everything. He has infinite knowledge. But at the same time, it talks about this in Ephesians chapter 1, that God set the awe of his affection on you before the foundation of the world. God knows that we're all sinners and we deserve judgment and hell. At the same time, God in his infinite grace and love and mercy had already built in the plan for our salvation. If nothing else gets you excited today, that should just make you go crazy. That this exaltation, this death, this king coming to save his subjects was all part of the plan. It was no surprise to Jesus or God. He was accomplishing every step that God wanted. And so Jesus is our Messiah. And I need you to catch this. Jesus was the Savior of the world before the world even began. He is the Savior today, and He is the only Savior there ever will be because there's only been one person to fulfill the Scriptures and die on the cross for your sin. I want you to think about this, and this is the thing that's the most humbling to me, is Jesus marches from Jerusalem to Skull Hill, Golgotha, Calvary, naked all the way. Now I want you to think for a minute, biblically and theologically, why? Why? Remember back in the garden, in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve enjoyed one another and were not ashamed of their nakedness. And here's what's interesting. God told Adam, when you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right, you'll surely die. And it's interesting, they don't drop dead immediately, but one of the very first effects of their sin and rebellion against God, their eyes are open. They notice their nakedness and the shame they feel felt, and they ran from one another. They hid. And listen to what it says in Genesis chapter 3, verses 9 and 11. It says, So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? Where are you at? And he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. Now listen to this response. So he hid. Listen to the response. Then he asked, who told you that you were naked? 
Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Did you notice the connection? Your shame, that exposure, that vulnerability, right? That is due to what? The consequences of sin against God's will and His Word. That is something that we experience. And what I need you to see is that God the Son came to this earth and experienced that, that exposure, that humiliation as he marched from Jerusalem to Calvary. And why would he do that? He did that for you and me. One other thing I want you to think about with these soldiers. And this, this shakes me to my core because I've been here too. Now imagine... Right up above them, they're, they're down in the, in the dirt, so to speak, with Jesus' clothes, casting lots to see who's going to get that tunic. That's, they're, they're interested in their silly little games and, and coming away with the prize, right? And yet, several feet above them, there is the consummate evidence of love, right? That's being displayed from all eternity. And, and is this not the truth? I just want you to catch this. And y'all, this is, this is especially good in this time. You know, we get, a, we get caught up in all the trappings, the games, the prizes, so to speak. We're sitting here playing in the dirt. And if we would just lift our gaze a little, if we would just refocus, reset our attention on what ultimately matters, the true source of hope, Healing, forgiveness, joy, and everlasting life is just right there above us. Out in the open for everyone to see. Will we not embrace it? Are we going to just keep our head down, living our life underneath the cross, so close, within an earshot, in a sight, of seeing it swimming around the gospel, and yet we never take Jesus seriously? Jesus was exalted, how? By his death, by the description, and by design. So what? What's that got to do with you and me? So Jesus' exaltation just is humiliation and crucifixion. Oh, but it has everything to do with you and me. If you're listening to me, watching me, it has to do with you. And you can write this down and you can bank your life on it. Jesus was exalted for what you deserve. He experienced the death, the mockery of the description, right? This design, this plan of salvation, it was all because of what you and I actually deserve. Here's what you have to get. God, the God of heaven, is infinitely holy, perfect and just. He is our creator. We are the creature. And you and I have sinned against him. We have trespassed his law. We have not met his expectation. In fact, he considers us his enemies, rebels, and children of wrath. And when we face him in judgment and give an account of our life, we will be found wanting of the glory that he expects. And we deserve, here's what I need you to understand, you and I, because of our sins in thought, word, and deed, and against God himself, we deserve judgment, death, and hell for all eternity. 
Now, we sit there and hear that, and that's not a comforting message at all. Who wants to dwell on those things? And yet, you hear Christians talking about the love of God. Who can know the height, the depth, the width of the love of God? We celebrate the love of God. What's so special about God's love if he's going to send everyone to hell? Here's the part. Do not have a careless eye when you read this passage because you'll miss it. You'll miss it. Just like that. Here's what I need you to see. As Jesus hung on the cross, eyes of men and women, small and great from nations, gathered and gazed upon Jesus. Now we kind of get that. But here's what's also happening. What's transpiring in the heavenlies on a cosmic scale. Get ready. I'm, oh man. Listen to this. The angels, the heavenly angels, they peeked over their abode to look at the wonder on the cross. All of hell's angels looked up and screeched in defeat. Why? Why? It's not because of our eyes and what we see here, right? It's not because of the eyes of what was beheld on the cross by men and women who were gathered there. It's not because of what the angels or the demons saw. It's here's why this whole passage changes history. Are you ready for what was, what was ultimately being seen that the rest of the Bible bears out and teaches us? This is so good. The eyes of the only true living God, the great God of Israel, and our Father, our Maker and Creator, watched His only begotten Son suffer for your sin and my sin on the cross. That's all that matters in that moment. God watched His only begotten Son suffer for humanity's sin. And here's what happened. This is so important. The sight of His Son erased from God's memory all our sins. I need you to see that. The vision of Jesus bleeding and dying for your sin and my sin has captured the mind of God. It is there. It occupies His mind eternally. So what does that mean for us? That is the way God has loved us. That God in His grace has given us the gift of His Son. And that our sins were charged to Jesus. And Jesus bore our sins on the cross. He was made sin and He suffered for our sins. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that would bring us peace with God, that would bring us back together with God, was laid upon Jesus. So by Jesus' wounds, we are healed. How do we know that what Jesus did on the cross actually works? How do we know that it actually brings healing? How do we know that it actually forgives us of our sin and restores us with a relationship with God? Here's how I know Three days later, God raised His Son Jesus from the dead 
And then Jesus told his disciples, you go and preach the forgiveness of sins in my name only. Some of you may be saying, God would never send me to hell. With gentleness and respect, you are not making sense. And I want you to think about this, okay? When Jesus takes on your sin at that cross, it's charged to him. God imputes it. That's the word. Charges his sin, our sin, to Jesus. And Jesus becomes the sinner with a capital S. We find out in other gospels that Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In John chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, that's Jesus, and the Word was with God, face to face with God, and the Word was God. I need you to understand that Jesus, the second person of the, of the Trinity, enjoyed face to face intimacy with God from eternity past. Now, here's what's happening. When our sins are charged to Jesus, God the Father turned his face away. That intimate fellowship, that unbroken, eternal, intimate fellowship, for a moment, God turned away from his only son. Now, here's what's mesmerizing to me. People think somehow, somehow, that they can go meet their maker and give an account of their life with their sins still on them. No one else has bore them, right? Jesus hasn't. Boy, they haven't trusted Jesus for forgiveness. So they're unforgiven. And, and I need you to see this. If God would turn away from his only begotten son as he became the sinner, what do you think he's going to do to you? It's just a fair question. If he had to look away at his own son, while he took our sins, and you're standing there before your infinitely holy maker in your sin, he's not just going to look away. He's going to say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. Your residence is hell. That's what you deserve. Especially since God did not spare, he bankrupted heaven and gave us his son, to reject his son. You've, you've rejected God himself, his absolute best. There's nothing left for you. It's tragic. You've got to take Jesus seriously. And here's the question. Here's what it really comes down to. And this is so fundamental. This is what we're saying. This is what we're asking you to believe in the most profound way possible in the depths of your soul. Do you believe 2,000 years ago when Jesus marched out of Jerusalem carrying that cross that he was bearing your sin? I want you to get that. That's what I believe. That's what Josh Taylor believes. I believe 2,000 years ago Jesus took all the sin I've committed and will ever commit and he took it on himself and he died to erase it. And so that God would forgive me and have a relationship with me. And I'm asking you, do you believe the same thing? Will you? Will you confess, I am a sinner, but I trust that Jesus took my sin? And will you commit your life to King Jesus? And let me add this. 
when we look at the cross of Christ, we ought to sorrow deeply for those who are unforgiven. Think, there are friends right now on social media that as of yet have shown no interest in Jesus or His shed blood for their sins. Some of who, if they were to close their eyes in death tonight, they would open their eyes in hell. They may be your own children. It could be millions of people you never know. There is death every second, and there is no other name given under heaven by which we can be saved. Do not weep for Jesus. We know the rest of the story. But weep for those who don't know Him. Your sincere sympathy for Jesus will be shown in your sincere sympathy for those who are lost and dying. Let us today, even though we're quarantined, we can extend the boundaries of the kingdom of Jesus as we preach Christ crucified and we share Christ crucified. Let the whole church preach and share Christ crucified more and more. And the power of the kingdom of Jesus will be felt to the very ends of the earth. Maybe he'll come back. Don't refuse to bear that cross. Don't be ashamed of that cross. That cross, if that cross is Jesus' exaltation, then for those who are saved by it, it is our glory. Our glory. Here we have a king bearing his banner, carrying his cross, traveling the streets of his city, surrounded by a throng who shout aloud, hastening him to his execution. He walks with heavy, weary feet, and they leave a footprint of crimson that paves the path of God's forgiveness for our sins, his enemies. Church, this is the march of our Maker. This is the march of our Savior. This is the march of the destroyer of sin and death. This is the exaltation of our King. I'm going to ask every head bowed and every eye closed. If you've never repented, you've never confessed that you're a sinner and trusted that Jesus bore your sins at Calvary and that God raised Him from the dead as proof that He has forgiven you. That I'm asking you today to call out to Jesus. He's not dead. He's alive. He hears your thoughts and whispers. And if you're ready to turn from your sin and turn your life over to Christ, to give your life to Him, to commit to Him, that He would be your King and you will follow Him all the days of your life. Then with every head bowed and every eye closed, would you simply pray this prayer to Jesus? This prayer will not save you. Okay, It's what you believe about your sin and Jesus, your Savior, your King, and your God. But will you convey that to Him? Will you call out to Him? Will you say this? Say, Dear Jesus, I confess that I am a sinner 
And I deserve judgment and hell. But I believe you came. You died on the cross for my sins. And God raised you from the dead to offer forgiveness of sins. Please forgive me. Give me everlasting life. Come into my life. Be my Savior and King. I commit my life to you. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I just simply want to say this, a couple of things. If you prayed that prayer, I want to ask you to do two things. Go to our website, our church website, mtcarmeldemarest.com, and then I want you to go hover over the Home tab and find Jesus' story. Watch that video and fill out that form. If you have, on the webpage, if you have never been baptized, we would delight in helping you make your private confession and commitment to Jesus public to the, to the church and the world. We will do whatever it takes. And here's what I want to encourage you to do. Your next right step is to go online, go to mtcarmeldemers.com. You can either do forward slash baptism or hover over the home tab, find baptism, fill out that form. I will be notified and I will contact you about your next right step. Here's the next thing that we're going to do. We're going to prepare ourselves for communion. And there's two things that I would like for you to take a moment to do. One, prepare your heart between you and the Lord. If you have any unrepentant and unconfessed sin, you take a few moments and, and pray and confess your sin and repent. The second thing is this, and you may need to pause the video in order to accomplish this. But pause this stream. If you have any person you need to extend forgiveness to or ask forgiveness from, contact them and do that. Com communion ultimately is about the community with acknowledging and remembering Jesus, but the church that he bought with his blood. And he longs for a unified, loving church. So even when we're scattered, that element can never be missing. So I'm going to put a countdown up and afterwards show you a video. And then we'll gather back here uh, around our respective devices and, and take... Thanks for listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. Please join us this Sunday at 11 a.m. To plan your visit, go to mtcarmeldemarest.com.